I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. They have seen nothing yet. In our day, no one has conceived anything great. It is for me to set the example. Napoleon Bonaparte, after the victory of Lodi. Hello again, guys, and thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Cullen, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Today, we've got a very interesting little story for you. We are talking about the Battle of Rivoli, where Napoleon kind of puts together all of his ideas and thoughts on war for the first time on display uh, in a way that uh, really puts him on another level in terms of of commanders, not just of his time, but through history. Uh, But before we get to Rivoli and Napoleon, a little bit of housekeeping. If you can, give a listen to the episode we put up last week. It was a conversation between myself and historian Josh Proven, He is the author of Wild East, a history of the British in Japan, 1854 to 1868. A very interesting period of time that I personally don't know much about, and I'm excited to order that book. So if if you can, join me in doing so, uh, and uh, we can maybe have a little book discussion with the author at some point down the line. The episode was basically a a little uh, taster episode for this particular Uh, main episode of Cauldron Podcast. We went over Rivoli, its importance, where it stands in in Napoleonic history. Uh, Josh was kind enough to give me over an hour of his time, and uh, we'll definitely have him on in the future to talk about uh, other Napoleonic battles. He's a specialist in the field. brings a lot of humor and humanity to military history, which is always really cool. Um, If you can, give him a, a follow on at Land of History on Twitter, uh, again, he brings a lot of humor to the to the field, and it's uh, he's a great follow. So check him out on Twitter again at Land of History. That's Josh Proven. His book is Wild East, and we'll definitely be getting him back here at some point down the line. I also joined a podcast called the Roast Mortem Podcast earlier this week. We went over the good, the bad, and the horrific of soldiers in World War II. So if you're into that kind of thing, give a listen. These guys are great. They have a lot of fun with history. They have a few cocktails. uh, They have a few jokes and laughs. And then they dive into a biography of a couple of people through history. Uh, In this particular one, again, we went over soldiers of World War II like Audie Murphy. And uh, if you're into that kind of thing, be prepared. It's a a long episode, but it's great for riding, you know, commuting in and out of work. Give them a rating and a review on iTunes if you can and if you like the show. Uh, As always, do the same for Cauldron Podcast if you are able to. A five-star rating and a review goes a long way to get the show seen and and put it it up on the the lists a little bit higher uh, if possible. So uh, do that and also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We post about, uh, about the battle that we're covering and we throw up 
pictures, maps, video, whatever I find that uh, that piques my interest will go up there. Next week, we'll have a conversation with Dr. Turner from the Australian War Memorial. Uh, he's going to help us kick off our coverage of the Kokoda Trail or the Kokoda Track, however you like. Uh, and I'm really excited about that. I got his book this week, and we'll be diving into that this weekend. So be on the lookout for that. And let's go back to 1797, mid-January, and follow the trail of Napoleon as he scurries around northern Italy and heads for the city of Rivoli. January 21st, 1793, Paris, France. The rectangular form of a most modern contraption, an enlightened killing machine, sits upon a platform on the Place de la Révolution. The guillotine has claimed many victims, but the true terror is still months away. On this day, a terror of another kind is kicked off, one that will run wild through Europe for the next 20-plus years, because today is the day that King Louis-Auguste de France-Bourbon, Louis XVI, dies. The French monarch, born the God-appointed ruler of all France, was not the right man for the task at hand. He failed to grasp the depth of people's anger and their willingness to meet whatever fate may come if it meant liberty, equality, and fraternity for France. The speed of events soon passed the Bourbon king's ability to cope with the rapidly evolving situation, and once arrested, his days were numbered. According to the sources, mounting the scaffold, Louis went to his death with dignity. His last words were wasted pardoning his executioners. The blade fell, some reports say more than once, and the noble head dropped into the collection basket below, and onlookers dipped their kerchiefs in the spouting Bourbon blood. The royal houses of Europe watched the fiasco in Paris unfold with increasing anxiety. If it could happen in one of the oldest countries, to one of the oldest regimes, who knows where this rot known as revolution might pop up next. The first coalition formed. The Dutch Republic, Great Britain, the Holy Roman Empire, Naples, Portugal, Sardinia, and Spain all combined forces to put the French people in their rightful place and a Bourbon king back on the throne. The dramatic French victory at Valmy, though in truth a small battle, proved a propaganda goldmine and a psychological coup. The proof was plain for the world to see. France not only could fight, but she could win. Liberty, equality, fraternity was too big an idea for one country alone, and it needed to spread. French armies would be the vehicle. News that the mob had gone the whole way and killed their king reached London, Vienna, Berlin, Madrid, and anywhere that a royal backside warmed a throne, panic set in. The French had to be dealt with once and for all. The early part of the war, after Valmy, saw France suffer several setbacks. A defeat at near Winden in 1793 and a Catholic royalist uprising in the Vendée had Paris on its heels. The baby republic now called upon the people the levy in mass, to defend their young nation and the people answered in kind. Mass conscription of all young men 18 to 25 years of age swelled the ranks of France's armies with overflowing enthusiasm and esprit de corps. The numbers are staggering. Under Louis, the French military maxed out at about 250,000. 
By the end of the War of the First Coalition, the French had fielded as many as 500,000 men, doubling their original total, a logistical triumph in its own right. In 1795, a young Napoleon Bonaparte, fresh off his performance at Toulon, gave some unruly Parisians attempting to overthrow the government what he famously termed as a, quote, whiff of grapeshot. At that moment, he dispersed the mob, saved the republic, and established himself as a player on the national scale. At this point, maybe not a big player, but in the game nonetheless. The next year, 1796, France, under the newly formed directory, prepared a massive advance on all fronts. On the Rhine, where everyone on both sides believed the war would be won, two large French armies under the experienced veteran generals Moreau and Jourdan planned to drive the Austrian troops back to the Tyrol. The war would be decided in the north, but there was a southern front along the border between France and Italy. With its surplus of available men, the Directory figured this region might prove a useful sideshow distraction. A rapidly elevated Napoleon was given an army and ordered to cause some chaos in northern Italy, maybe draw some Austrian troops and attention away from the Rhine and grab as much loot from the wealthy Italian cities as he could. While on his smash-and-grab tour through Italy, if Napoleon's army could make its way to the Tyrol and team up with the other French armies for a march on Vienna, well, that would be great but the Directory was mainly concerned with filling its rapidly emptying coffers. Again, nobody thought the war would be won by either combatant in the South. That is, nobody but Bonaparte. When the little Corsican arrived in Nice to take his first significant command, his intelligence and energy quickly impressed his older, more experienced subordinates. Napoleon recognized that there was an opportunity in northern Italy, an opportunity for his army to win stunning victories and for him to win a reputation. With what would become his hallmark speed, Napoleon set about rebuilding his troops' morale and planning his invasion. In April of 1796, a Napoleonic whirlwind was unleashed upon the Piedmontese and Sardinians. His army, marching divided and in separate columns, and then concentrating for the attack made it seem like the French were everywhere and the Piedmontese couldn't cope. Campaigning like this also made discerning Napoleon's intent and his exact numbers very difficult, while leaving him with plenty of options and lots of freedom of movement. His men lived off the land and foraged for food. This meant his armies might look ragged and local relations were often strained, but Napoleon could achieve astounding speeds with his unburdened columns. By separating the forces of Piedmont-Sardinia from their ally, the Austrians, Napoleon was able to defeat each army in turn, a strategy that would prove to be one of his favorite ways of dealing with an enemy. Not everything went Napoleon's way, though, in these first few legs of his Italian campaign, and he had much to learn. As historian David Gibson puts it, quote, Italy was a secondary theater. Locked in a defensive strategy at the time, Napoleon assumed command. His strategy clearly was to divide the Piedmontese army from their Austrian senior partners. Initially, his campaign against the Piedmontese was unsuccessful and wasteful. His frontal assaults at Seva were futile. This is not the Napoleon of legend. The aggressiveness is there, but not the tactical finesse. Italy was Napoleon's on-the-job training. He did not spring fully developed into the great military mind that history holds him. 
But the seeds of that military genius are present in this campaign. He was eventually able to neutralize the Piedmont army by a threatened movement against Turin. His subsequent campaign against the Austrian army in Italy further honed his strategic and tactical skills, end quote. He was a quick learner and an even faster implementer. Soon, he was building on the lessons of war, and by the end of the Italian campaign, Napoleon would become the general of legend, the great military mind that Gibson mentions. Against this mind for war, the lesser members of the coalition could not stand. The Piedmontese and Sardinians sued for a separate peace, and Napoleon stunned the world in one swift blow by knocking out a significant enemy, securing his rear and line of communications in retreat, and by winning the provinces of Savoy and Nice for France. Not a bad start for the little Corsican. Next up for Boney, though, were the Austrians, under the overmatched General Boileau. Maneuvered into a weak position at Lodi, Boileau was beaten badly and hightailed his army 100 miles to the east along the Adige River. The Austrian withdrawal won Napoleon some breathing room, and instead of pressing a pursuit, he spent time taking Milan and extracting every penny possible from the region. Napoleon's explosive first act put the Directory in a strange position. They loved the cash coming in, and the string of victories made for great press, but this slight, smallish man in charge of the Armée d'Italie was also proving hard to manage, meddlesome, and most concerning, his popularity among the people was skyrocketing. To replace him would have been a mistake, but they would need to find a way to neutralize him at some point. Now, here's a spoiler alert. The directory never quite figured out how to do that. Boileau and the Austrians rallied at Mantua, a centrally located city south of Lake Garda and the Tyrol. Any invader intent on getting to Vienna would have to hold Mantua or risk having a large enemy army roaming free in its rear. Napoleon realized this and quickly marched his army to Mantua, putting the city under siege. Through the summer and fall of 1796, Napoleon continuously staved off repeated enemy attempts at lifting the siege. Mantua's central position, surrounded to the east by Verona, Legnano, and Padua on the Venetian plain, to the south by Modena, Bologna, and Florence and Rome, and in the west by Parma and Milan, meant that whoever held it could strike out in any direction while also maintaining an easily defensible position. The Austrians neglected to coordinate properly, though, and each relief attempt failed after Napoleon used his interior lines to move troops quickly to the right spot at the right time. One Austrian attack succeeded, kind of. After taking a beating at Bassano, the Austrian general Wormser was able to fight his way into Mantua, but instead of relieving the city, Wormser now added thousands of mouths to be fed from the dwindling supplies, and the siege continued. By the winter of 1796, Napoleon was, if not master of northern Italy, he was at least the landlord. He controlled the entire Adige River Valley, the plains around Mantua, and dictated the actions of many of Italy's powerful city-states. It was not a position without problems, though, and Napoleon did have one issue that plagued him, his lack of men. The Directory promised him 50,000 fresh soldiers, but only a fraction made it to the theater of operations. 
Napoleon's Eastern Front was a line that started in the north, halfway up the east coast of Lake Garda, around the town of Rivoli, and ran roughly along the Adige River to Legnano in the south. Then he had to garrison Bologna, Verona, and a dozen other small cities and forts along his communications line. And to top it all off, he had to maintain his strength around Mantua. He believed that the city would soon fall, but if there was a slackening of the siege, Wormser and his trapped Austrian troops might well fight their way out. That would be a disaster, both for the campaign and for Napoleon's career. There were also rumors that the Pope was tired of the heathen godless French Republicans roaming around Italy, blackmailing and committing common thuggery on a grand scale. A papal army marching north to aid Mantua was a possibility Bonaparte had to consider and guard against, which in turn meant he had to spare more men for border patrol duty in the south. Heading into 1797, everyone thought that they held the trump cards. Napoleon had his central position and knew if he could deal with each attacker in turn, he would win. The Austrians believed an overwhelming attack from the east, a papal army from the south, and a breakout from Mantua's besieged 24,000 men would be too much for the young French phenom to handle. Somehow, the Austrians pulled together another field army, this one their fifth to fight in Italy. Mustered and outfitted in Vienna, this newish army was a mixed lot, totaling some 45,000 men. Veteran units that had suffered defeat at Arcola and other actions against the French and reinforcements from the Rhine made up a good portion. They were maybe less steady than they once were, but they still had excellent training and experience to pull from. The rest of this army was made of fresh recruits pulled from the vast area of the empire. Having not faced a line of enemy muskets or artillery, these units had the high, excited morale of the raw soldier. And because the situation around Mantua was so dire, the Austrians needed to move fast. These fresh troops would have to deal with a curtailed training period. The man in charge of this hastily drawn-together army, Austrian General Joseph Alvinci, had a deep love for the elaborate maneuvers and tactics of Frederick the Great of Prussia. Unfortunately for Austria, he lacked the Prussian king's skill and talent. The Austrian plan, formulated by the same man that would shape the disastrous Austerlitz campaign for the Allies, was tricky and all about timing, but not necessarily terrible. The plan was to drive Napoleon in several places, hoping cracks in his defenses would appear. The Austrians would move in three columns, giving Napoleon several choices, all of them bad. Heading west across the Venetian plain for Legnano, which was Napoleon's eastern and southernmost flank, currently held by General Augereau with 10,000 men, was the Austrian general Giovanni Marquis de Provera, with a force of around 9,000 men. A second column, under General Bahalik, with about 6,000 men, would move on Verona, where General Messena, the French general, was stationed with 9,000. And under General Baron Joseph Alvinci, the third column would dash south along the Adige River, attempting to slam into the French far left and northernmost flank and smash its way to Mantua with a sledgehammer numbering some 28,000 men. Along Alvinci's line of attack stood the army of General Jobert with 10,000 troops at La Corona, just north of the small town of Rivoli. 
Napoleon, in theory, was caught between the horns of a dilemma. If he responded to the first column heading west and sent his reserves there, the northern column would have a straight shot to Mantua and overpowering numbers. If the young French general addressed the northern column, Bahalik and Provera's force might combine and shoot past Legnano and lift the siege of Mantua, possibly even linking up with the papal army heading north from Rome. And, most ideal for the Austrians, the possibility existed that so much information coming at once might freeze a young general like Napoleon and keep him from thinking clearly, trick him into trying to do too much at once, or keep him from reacting at all. Either way, it seemed like Bonaparte was bound to be trapped by multiple enemies. Napoleon would need to decide which attack was the most important and move quickly to confront it. He would have no time to waste, and there would be no second chances. Napoleon was indeed uh, in a tight spot. He had three enemy columns moving to encircle and crush his smaller and more dispersed army, and Napoleon's army of Italy was in rough shape. Nine months of tough campaigning, living off the land, had left equipment and men ragged, and the supply situation was tenuous at best. Napoleon technically had a marginal numerical superiority, but only on paper. The actual fighting force was much smaller, closer to 20-25,000 men that could be maneuvered and sent into the action. On January 10th and 9th, Provera and Bahalik attacked in the south at Legnano and Verona, respectively. The attacks were small and exploratory in nature, but they were enough to draw Napoleon's attention. It seems that, at first, he thought this unlikely to be the main thrust, but then decided that since it was January and winter was in full force, an attack from the mountainous north was less feasible. He began to prepare to reinforce Augereau's army at Legnano. Napoleon rushed north from his headquarters at Bologna to get a better sense of the action. Soon, Napoleon's tired and weary generals began to bombard him with calls for help. Both Massena and Augereau were under pressure and claimed they now faced the main Austrian attack. Bonaparte impresses here with his ability to sift through exaggeration, error, and rumor. His mind, capable of working at an impressive speed, excelled at divining truth from uncertainty. On the 12th, Jobert sent word to Napoleon, now at Verona, that he was under attack as well. Napoleon faced his most tense and dangerous test yet. Which strike was the real threat? Jobert's claim from La Corona had a different feel to it than the others, and Napoleon demanded more information from the now hard-pressed Jobert. He wrote to his general in the north, quote, It is vitally important that I should know whether the attack being made upon you is serious, or merely a secondary affair designed to put us off, end quote. Early on the 13th, Jobert understood his plight was dire. He faced a much larger and more determined enemy coming at him from multiple directions. That afternoon, he'd lost his forward positions on the slopes of Montebaldo and was in danger of being outflanked, so Jobert pulled back to the town of Rivoli, five miles south of his original position, and sent word to Napoleon detailing his situation. That was it. Napoleon realized this was the dangerous thrust that the Austrians hoped could break out Wormser and free Mantua. 
This was the army Napoleon must crush if he planned to continue his meteoric rise. Buoyed by the knowledge that he had an enemy to destroy and having cleared some of the fog of war, Napoleon went into warp speed. He grabbed Messena and his men from Verona, and he left Augereau to hold the southern line until he could get back, a challenging and critical job for the already taxed French general. Flying up the road to Rivoli some 15 miles from Verona, Napoleon arrived at Jobert's camp a little after midnight, around 2 a.m. on the 14th. He had reached Rivoli just in time as he met Jobert in a church penning a letter to Napoleon saying he was evacuating Rivoli that morning. Napoleon immediately belayed that order and gave his wavering general heart as he excitedly went out into the crisp, chilly night to observe the Austrian positions. The French at Rivoli would make a stand, even though outnumbered, for the moment, three to one. To the north of Rivoli, there is a line of high ground called the Trumbalore Heights, a slightly curved line bulging northward and running east to west about a mile in length, the line is anchored on the left flank by the small Tasso River, a tributary of the Adige, and the Osteria Gorge and the Adige River itself on the far right flank. On the ridge's right side is San Marco's Chapel and a small village, structures that gave whoever held it a powerful anchor. Across from the ridge line is Monte Baldo and the Tasso River, which runs parallel to the rise. Rivoli, the town, sits south of the Trumbalore Heights, about a mile and a quarter away, nestled close to the river. Close behind the city is the hill known as Mount Pipolo. Napoleon had accurate enough maps to work with, but he wanted to see how the Austrians had positioned themselves. Napoleon, Berthier, his chief of staff, Jobert and their staffs looked out across the plateau and counted the enemy campfires, noting their locations. Napoleon had chosen correctly. This was indeed the main attack. The army before him was almost 30,000 men strong. Reading the land swiftly, Napoleon ordered Jobert to garrison the chapel of San Marco. The building would give an excellent view of the battlefield and work as a strong point for his defensive line. The fighting at this church would be brutal and violent, a point at which both sides would test their will to win. This would be a constant throughout warfare in the Napoleonic Age. Anytime a church, a farm, an estate, or village, structure of any kind really, was on a battlefield, it inevitably became the focal point of intense fighting. And just as typically, the spot would trade hands over and over throughout the battle, as was true at Rivoli. The Osteria Gorge lay on Napoleon's right flank between the heights and the Adige. This deep-cut gulch snaked its way past the French line and opened into the rear of Jobert's forces, right between the Trumbalore Heights and Rivoli itself. If the Austrians could force their way through the gorge and come out this end, they would outflank the French main line, attack Jobert's rear, and cut off his only line of retreat. This was indeed Alvinci's plan. He split his army into six columns, again a wannabe Frederick the Great and three would assault from the north across the Tasso River up onto the Trumbalore in a direct attack on Jobert's line, but critically here with very little to no artillery support. One Austrian column, loaded with most of the Austrian cannon and cavalry, would pound its way through the Osteria Gorge, 
hoping to slip past the right or eastern French flank and come out in Jobert's rear area. Another column would move along the far east bank of the Adige River. This column would set up its artillery across from Rivoli and harass the French from afar, always threatening to cross if needed. The last of Alvinci's columns swung out far to the west of the battlefield. This column was ordered to make a wide, sweeping maneuver heading south, aiming to reach the area of Monte Moscat, skirting the Rivoli Plateau entirely. Then, around Mount Pipolo, just south of Rivoli, this Austrian surprise attack would rush north, ready to meet the hopefully now retreating French army. If the timing worked perfectly, Jobert's army would be encircled and pulverized, and Napoleon's dreams of glory right along with it. Napoleon's force would be crushed between the Austrian pincers on the right and the enveloping force on the left. Like Alvinci's overall strategy, this battle plan isn't terrible. In the hands of a better general and a better army, it may well have worked. But there were risks with this plan. One column would be operating far to the west of the action and essentially on its own without any communications. And then two other columns were separated from the main body by the Osteria Gorge and the Adige River itself. So the same reasons that it was dangerous for Napoleon to address these attacks, it was dangerous for those attacks to happen at all. But again, if the timing worked and things came together, Napoleon was doomed. Napoleon had two tasks to accomplish on the morning of January 14th. First, he needed to buy time. Massena was hauling ass north with his 4,500 men, but could only move so fast, and General Ray, who had been dispatched as soon as Napoleon realized Rivoli was where the battle would happen, had 2,800 men coming as well, but he had to sail across Lake Garda first and then march north a bit before reaching Rivoli. Both would eventually get to Rivoli, but the more time, the better. The second task Napoleon had that morning was to retake the initiative. Alvinci had been making all the moves to this point. The Austrian general had dictated the battle's speed and geography so far. That needed to change, and it needed to change quickly. To that end, Napoleon launched a spoiling attack at dawn. This would put Alvinci on his heels a bit and force the Austrians to react instead of the other way around. It also put some fire back into the bellies of the French soldier, who had, up to this point, been forced to withdraw continuously. Now the French soldiers felt like they were doing what they were built for. They were attacking. At 7 a.m., even though he was outnumbered 9,000 to 12,000 on the Trembolor Heights, Jobert launched an all-out assault rolling from west to east. The French advanced in a wave with 18 cannon firing in support. The spoiling attack put the Austrian army's plans into disarray for a short while. Soon, the Austrian numbers' sheer weight righted their formations and began to press the French hard, and a couple of hours after their initial attack, the French were being forced back. Around 9 a.m., Napoleon faced disaster. Two French demi-brigades, the 29th and the 85th, snapped and broke on his left. Jobert's line's left flank was melting before his eyes, and the potential for the Austrians to roll up the entire French line was now a distinct possibility. Fortunately for Jobert, 
Massena had already arrived, narrowly escaping capture himself, and with his reinforcing troops acting as a ready reserve, Napoleon fed these winded but combat-ready men into the hole on Jobert's left flank. Now the fighting at the center of Jobert's line intensified. One French battery of guns was overrun by Austrian grenadiers and the elite Hock und Deutschmaster Regiment. A French officer in the 14th Demi Brigade screamed at his men, quote, 14th, will you let them take your guns? The 14th roared a response and charged in with bayonets, retaking their guns and scattering the Austrians before them. So fierce were the Austrian attacks on the Trumbalore Heights that, for a time, the fortified chapel of San Marco had to be abandoned by the French garrison. But before the Austrians could take it, the French rallied and won it back. They would hold on for dear life here, making the Austrians pay a heavy price for every attack on the church. And even with this local setback, Alvinci's plan was still working. The attack on the Trumbalore that had stuttered at dawn because of Napoleon's preemptive strike had regained its footing, and all along the French line, the Austrians struck hard and pressed their numbers home. The French unit, the 39th Demi-Brigade of about a thousand men that were holding the Osteria Gorge's mouth, was forced to withdraw once the Austrian artillery across the Adige began to fire down upon it. An Austrian cavalry and grenadier charge sent the French at the mouth of the gorge reeling backwards. But the uneven, broken terrain of the gorge made rapid exploitation and movement by the Austrians impossible. The outflanking Austrian column far to the west of the battlefield was working splendidly as, as it met a small French blocking force and sent it staggering back. Soon this force would be in Rivoli and cutting off the French army. It seemed for the moment that Alvinci's tactical plan, though complicated, was working. The trap was sprung and Napoleon seemingly caught in its grasp. However, had the Austrian general been with Napoleon when the Corsican and his staff heard musket fire from the south, Napoleon's reaction would have been unnerving, troubling. Napoleon's staff reported the enveloping enemy column was in the rear of the French army and had succeeded in cutting off its retreat. Some of the French generals were on the verge of panic and began to debate whether or not to capitulate. An unperturbed Napoleon is supposed to have smirked as he stared southward towards the oncoming enemy and growled at his subordinates, quote, They are ours, end quote. Or, another source reported it as, quote, We have them now, end quote. Not sure which one, but something sufficiently succinct and dramatic, we are reassured. The chapel at San Marco proved a sticking point throughout the battle. The Austrians needed it if they wanted to push through the Osteria Gorge. And if the French held the chapel, any attack through the gorge would be exposed to withering, infilating fire from above and likely would fail. Infilating fire, again, is that... Uh, terrible, devastating flanking fire that in the time of Napoleon, when you're maneuvering in columns, would just mow down entire units. The fighting at the chapel intensified as both sides acknowledged its importance, but the French held it in the face of every assault. Around 11, with his otherworldly sense for the moment of crisis in battle, Napoleon threw in his reserves. He sent Massena's cavalry brigade 
to deal with the western outflanking force that was now approaching from the south. Then, siphoning men from Jobert's line on the Trumbalore, Napoleon set up a mixed infantry, cavalry, and artillery position at the Osteria Gorge's mouth. This move was dangerous. It thinned out his already outnumbered, hard-pressed center, and for a moment it looked like it could be fatal. But the Austrian column that came through the gorge was met by a wall of grapeshot fired by the repositioned cannon. Then Jobert led his infantry against the Austrian column's flank, pouring fire into the Austrian men below in the gorge. At the same time, Berthier, Napoleon's brilliant chief of staff, organized a small but wildly successful cavalry charge that created great carnage and chaos in the gorge. The Austrians were shredded and sent fleeing back the way they'd come. As the men scrambled and jammed into the canyon trying to get as far away from the death trap above as possible, an ammunition wagon nearby exploded, causing even more death and damage. Chaubert's right flank was secure. With the threat to the right flank neutralized, Napoleon brought back the men he had taken to the Osteria attack and plugged them back into the center of Jobert's Trumbalore position. He then ordered Jobert to advance all along the line of battle. Led by a small cavalry force of some 200 men that desperately rode into the surging Austrian infantry, the French infantry on the Trumbalore heights moved forward, crashing down the slope onto the plains before them. The poor Austrians were exhausted from the day of, of marching and brutal non-stop fighting. The French, for their part, took heart in the attack, the spirit of revolution, and their total belief in their general, their so-called little corporal, strengthened them with absolute confidence in the attack, even after all they'd been through. If it was what the little corporal decided needed doing, they would do it or die trying. What had appeared to be a smashing Austrian victory earlier that morning by the afternoon had turned to smoke and seemed like another magic trick by the young French general. Alvinci ordered his remaining units to fall back to La Corona as quickly and orderly as possible. The Austrian infantry wavered. A French cavalry charge of two to four hundred men broke them. The whole Austrian force went fleeing in every direction, desperate to escape the hacking sabers of the hussars and cuirassars, Alvinci himself narrowly evading capture. While the drama on the Trumbalore played out, the Austrian force in the south was stopped in its tracks by Massena's reserve cavalry. Napoleon moved to the sector to cheer his men on in person, urging the 18th, saying, Brave 18th, I know you. The enemy will not stand before you. The men, exhorted on by their beloved general, replied with a roar, En avant, and ravaged the Austrians before them. Then General Ray's unit appeared and fell upon the exposed Austrian column's rear. The Austrian company was shattered. Of the 4,500 men that had started the battle, only about 300 escaped. Its commander, General Lusignan, was forced to hide in caves to evade capture. Trapped on Mount Pipolo, the remaining men of Alvinci's grand sweeping column surrendered. The Austrian army ceased to exist as a fighting force. They were now just a herd of scared, scattered humans trying to get to safety. Napoleon again, seemingly, had snatched victory from defeat. The 
field of Rivoli belonged to Napoleon, but the Austrian threat to Mantua still existed. Provera's column had crossed the Adige and threatened to break for Mantua. On the night of the 14th, Napoleon headed south. He ordered Massena and his men to follow as quickly as possible. Jobert, for his part, was given the order to finish the Austrians retreating from Rivoli. Starting with a brilliant night attack and going for the next few days, a tenacious pursuit scattered Alvinci's army to the wind. By the 16th, Jobert had inflicted some 14,000 Austrian casualties, killed, wounded, or captured, for a mere 5,000 French. Alvinci regrouped with the little army that he had left at Trent and tried to help Provera and Bahalik, but to no avail. On the same day at La Favorita, just north of Mantua, the last Austrian threat, Provera's column, surrendered, putting an end to the Austrian offensive turned debacle. Bonaparte now had an opportunity to sweep the leg of his Austrian opponents. He went for the jugular vein. Everywhere they could, Napoleon's army sprang forward. Jobert drove Alvinci from the city of Trent and kept him on his heels until the Austrian army was all the way east to the Piave River. Messena expelled Bialik from Bassano and followed him across the Brenta River. Messena, one of Napoleon's favorite marshals, was granted the title of Duke of Rivoli, and for good reason. He and his men had fought and marched almost nonstop for four days. In his dispatches to the Directory, Napoleon lavished his generals with praise, saying, quote, It is said that the Roman legions marched 24 miles a day. Our brigades have marched 30 while also fighting, end quote. Their actions and ferocity gave Napoleon the freedom to focus on battle tactics without worrying if the men would be where he needed them. Augereau in the south moved his column further east, threatening the Austrian left flank and its line of retreat. The Austrian front was now much further east of where it had started and much closer to Vienna. Napoleon had met every effort to relieve Mantua by the Austrians, and this last, most significant attempt he had not only defeated, but utterly destroyed. Each attempt to link up had been successfully disrupted by Napoleon, again, thanks to the central position and use of interior lines. Mantua, now truly well alone, tried a few half-hearted breakouts, but a combination of starvation and low morale led to the city's surrender on February 2, 1797. Wormser was allowed to go back to Vienna with a handful of troops and guns, but the French interred the vast majority of the surrendered Austrian soldiers. According to Napoleon's report to the Directory, the Austrians lost 6,000 dead and wounded, 25,000 prisoners, 60 cannons, and 24 standards. The French, a mere 700 killed and 1,200 wounded. Speed in war equals choices, and Napoleon innately understood this. He moved incredibly fast and by springtime he had driven the Austrians from the Tyrolean mountains and captured Trieste in April. He now had options on how best to proceed, and using the Directory's distance as a subtle excuse not to consult with them, he made it clear that his word was the word of France in all diplomatic relations. The Austrians, for their part, acknowledged that they faced an invasion they just could not stop. Their best general, Archduke Charles, scrambled to fend off France's legions, but they moved ever closer to Vienna, despite all his best efforts. 
Within 100 miles of the city, Napoleon demanded the Austrians talk to him. On October 17, 1797, the Peace of Campo Formio was signed, ending the war in Italy and, for all intents and purposes, the First War of the Coalition. France took control over northern Italy and was given Belgium and territory along the Rhine. Milan, Bologna, and Modena were organized into the Cisalpine Republic. Genoa was restructured and formed into the Ligurian Republic. Feudal Italy was officially dead. The first seeds of revolution outside of France had been planted in Italy, and it would take decades for those seeds to sprout, but sprout they would. The war in northern Italy was over, won by the mind of a man whose name, at the time, few people outside of France even knew. But after Rivoli, the name Napoleon Bonaparte would never be forgotten. As we wrap up this episode, I want to take a second to just kind of uh, discuss with you a little bit of, of the, the lasting results of Rivoli, because what we're seeing here is the creation both of, of a military man and his myth. Napoleon in Italy learns the value of propaganda. He seems to be everywhere and always at the most crucial moment with the best plan and an action movie star's quip or speech. This oddly appears to be half true. He was indeed all over the place and regularly saved the day, right down to uh, lining up and setting cannon in a crisis. Napoleon's shrewd political brain also understood that embellishing these truths for the people back home only built his name more, and it endeared him to his men even more. And, and the truth of the matter is he was fearless. He constantly put himself in danger, and in doing so, he got his men to do the same. Uh, if their general, if, they're, uh, if the, the, they wanted their little corporal to be the best, then they would have to put themselves in harm's way as well. At, at 20 years, 28 years old, Napoleon had already distinguished himself as not just the most innovative general of the day, but... By Rivoli, it was clear that he was the best commander of men in battle since Frederick the Great, Alvinci's idol. This uh, clear understanding of the benefits of the central position, a willingness to endanger some of his men if needed, the innovative use of interior lines, and speed, speed, and more speed all added up to a, a general that would one day be among the pantheon of the great commanders. But the the blueprint for Napoleonic greatness was refined at Rivoli and, and time and again would be used to significant effect over the next 20 years. His masterpiece battles are either envelopment actions, uh, like at Castiglione, or like at Rivoli, a display of interior lines and central position. But, but these theories and axioms and ideas of war could be followed by anyone. They, they don't necessarily... Um, they hint at success, but they don't create it. No general can say they will use the <laughs> no general can say they will use the central position and therefore they will win. There is no plug-and-play preset list of maneuvers to fit all circumstances that guarantee victory. Victory relies on much more, and Napoleon understood that. 
His ability to sense the enemy's intention and force them to act against their own will is spooky at times. He had an intuitive feel for combat readiness, not just with his uh, enemy, but, but maybe more importantly, with his own men. His innate understanding of the weight and physics of battle, of timing, and of morale is, is really hard to explain, uh, or, or really hard to figure out how it's possible. The, the vision that he had to see the picture, both strategic and tactical, and react with uncommon speed was unique for its time. And, and beyond the general's tent and the map room, Napoleon displayed what was probably his most remarkable traits as a leader. With a playwright's understanding of men's passions, he could give heart or strike fear with a few well-placed words. His glance, produced at the right moment to the right man, could expose a weakness or inspire great courage. And like Hannibal and many others, he was a commander that lived and suffered very much with his men, at least at the beginning of his career. All these things mark Napoleon out as a uniquely gifted general, and at the Battle of Rivoli in mid-January 1796, we see them all come together at once, on full display for the first time in the little corporal's career. All right. Thank you guys for listening. That was the Battle of Rivoli. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was uh, informative. I know I learned a lot while I was researching. Um, some great sources that I used. Uh, the Rise of Napoleon Bonaparte by Robert Asprey. The West Point Military History Series, The Wars of Napoleon uh, published by Avery and a whole bunch of others, but I will include those in the show notes. So check that out. If you are interested, uh, we have a few things coming down the pipeline. Like I said earlier, I have Dr. Turner coming on next week to talk about Kokoda and the next episode will be on the battle of the, well, technically campaign of the Kokoda trail or track. So uh, stay tuned for that. As always, please rate, review, subscribe. And if you can, go ahead and check out our Patreon. Again, we have the War A to Z series running on that. And uh, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, if you have an opportunity to, go and check out Fix Bayonets. It's a secondary project podcast I'm working on with a couple other historians. Uh, or, well, they're historians. I'm just a guy who likes history. Um, so check that out. Again, that's Fixed Bayonets. It's World War I, a deeper look. Uh, and I hope you guys are having a great year. So far, it has been interesting. Hopefully, it gets better and better as it goes forward. Uh, we really appreciate all your support, and uh, have a good one. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>